Hi, everybody. It's Stephanie. Welcome to Translating Everything. Today's episode is going to be a recap of the Power, Episode 5, Scarlet Minnow, in which the author of the novel, Naomi Alderman, confirms trans women are women and the power goes to them too. If you listen to Dave, Jenna, and Joanna Robinson of Find Over Game of Thrones with their acclaimed podcast, Cast of Kings, then you know the pleasures of a recap show with the host. He's an expert on both the books and the show. Asura Komiya, my work in research published and in activism, recently earned me a nomination as the second only transgender nominee for 40 under 40 from University of Georgia. Georgia. Without attention comes its own kind of power, and with great power comes great yada, yada, yada. So, for the foreseeable future, I'll be using my unique insight into the book in Amazon Studio Shadow of Power to offer a recap series like no other. Let us start off with a quote from Reddit user Lady Summersile. A lack of power means you often don't get to choose your allies. We begin with Tatiana in present day ish in Carpesia. Let's change that image yet further. In Carpesia, Tatiana is a powerful woman. She is the wife of Victor Mosquil. In an earlier episode, a figure from Tatiana's past came to her begging for help. Tatiana turned her away. To ignore the police of a helpless woman is parallel song. Tatiana accepted a marriage to a disgusting police so that she could have more power than anyone else. And yet she watches the news. She sees other people awaken into a power her husband cannot give her. A power that should have been hers all along. She just needs to find the one who will activate her scheme. Margot, in a mirrored storyline, prepares for an interview that will test the limits of her power too. Like Tatiana, she doesn't have a skin, at least not an active one. When she walks into an enormous skyscraper to take photos for the cover of Vanity Fair, no doubt was a guest on the podcast co-hosted by Joanna Robinson. She walks the walk and talks the talk. But this is a strange position for Margot to be in. She suddenly becomes a face of the skin, the face of the power. But you can see it in her expression as the photographer tells her to look like she's about to rip his face off. He needs her to look fierce and powerful, but she's uncomfortable. <laughs> she's afraid. This challenge is big, and the consequences are even bigger. Yet she won't allow herself to use the one thing she could use to keep herself safe. The person waiting to teach her that lesson won't reveal herself until the end of the episode. More on that later. Tatiana. Tatiana enters her room. As Margot explains on TV how the skein works, she looks longingly at her own neck. The skein should be there. The skein is there, but it's not active. She sees women with the power she's supposed to have, but her husband makes sure she'll never have that power. He's killed every woman who's expressed it. Indeed, as Margot sits down to have her assistant polish her appearance, we're told that Solongo is the only woman in Carpathia allowed to get near Tatiana. Any other woman young enough to have the power has either been killed or forbidden from getting near her. We better hope this girl doesn't get woke. Tatiana continued, Tatiana's husband refuses any advice for how to handle the emergence of scenes in Carpathia. He will do what he wants when he wants how he wants. No one will speak against him. No one will question that he is the rightful owner of power. Men across the world are still taking measures to ensure the current gender paradigm continues as the status quo. This is when the show cuts to Tatiana's sister, who may not be in as much luxury, 
but in another sense. She has a kind of captivity with her sister. Her sister Zoya. Zoya is held captive as a sex slave with lots of other girls who are too old to have an awakened skin without power-affirming therapy. Like many, many, many women, she needs medical care if she's to be whole. Except her captors, like Tatiana's husband, murder anyone who exhibits any sign of the power. You don't need to have an active stain. They just need to suspect you have one. Case in point, they take one girl who surely does not have the power, lest she would have defended herself. At least that's what I want to believe. They take her out of the room and let the girl know how helpless her situation is. Let's see if I got We don't see what happens. We just hear her screams, the gunshot, sudden silence. And in the heat of Zoya's fear, she remembers what brought her to this moment. It was a final encounter with her sister Tatiana before they went their separate ways. In another flashback, a little bit deeper, while Tatiana prepares herself in the mirror, Zoya plays with the chess pieces. Most notably, the pieces she plays with is the queen. Mm, Y'all, here is where the show foreshadows everything these two sisters will face when finally reunited. That's not a spoiler for future episodes. I've seen nothing. It's just an observation that this is clearly a show where every soundbite and visual is a deliberate feast of foreshadowing. Zoya holds the queen in her hands casually, thoughtfully, like it holds the secrets to her future. She circles the queen around another chess piece that's equally symbolic. See, it's a rook. Queens can move forward, backward, left, right, diagonally. Their power is universal. Rooks can only move left, right, forward, backward. They got a strength, but their power is narrow, limited, easily defeated unless joined in with that of the king. A castle move is a kind of Hail Mary if you don't do it right. Mm. You know what? I just noticed that's not even a picture of a rook and a queen. It's a pawn. Well, maybe that's appropriate, but hold on. Let me get the right picture. Mm -mm -mm. Okay, so let me just see. I just need a queen and a rook. Ah, there we go. Queen of light, god of whatever. So, um, I'm just that's just a joke. I love you for and um, Chris. I forget your last name. Wikipedia states a queen wins against a long rook unless there is an immediate draw by stealing or due to perpetual check. Or if the rook or king can immediately capture the queen. In 1895, Edward Freeborough edited an entire 130-page book of analysis of this endgame, titled The Chess Ending King and Queen Against King and Rook. Tatiana may appear to have the upper hand right now, but by the time these two reunite, it will be checkmate. Watch out for the rook, Tatiana, to eventually ally herself in a castle with the one king she trusts. Back to the show, there is a break in playing with chess pieces as the adults outside the room argue in loud Romanian. Zoya first tries to talk to Tatiana in Romanian, but her sister reminds her that to be successful, she gotta play by the rules. And the first one is um, to speak English. Not because it's better, but because it's power. Their caretakers don't understand English and it's the only way they can speak each other freely, these sisters. Tatiana says, you don't want them to understand you. 
And this is just discussed Tatiana's future in the Olympics, what's needed to survive in this world. If you can take power, then you gotta take it. You gotta keep it. And if you can't share it with the people like you, you must need it. Tatiana's success as a future Olympian speaks for itself. Zoya is extremely jealous of Tatiana and her Olympic future, but she's a good sister. Jealous, but not envious. She supports Tatiana, well, mostly. Zoya says, I know they can only pick one girl for the Olympics, and you're the chosen one. Not to worry, though, Zoya has plans. She's going to go to Israel to find Mrs. Mrs. Josen, a woman who used to live next door. She hasn't seen her since she is four years old. It was just a few years ago, but that's a long time. Zoya says, yeah, but when she left, she told me that I could live with It's funny and it's sweet, and Tatiana promises to bring back gifts for Zoya. You know, chocolate and cheese. <laughs> Y'all can already guess what other gifts the two sisters are going to share. So then it's um, still a flashback. We got Tatiana Olympics training. From there, a flashback jumps to Tatiana training for the Olympics, and this was hard to watch. When she tries a run and doesn't stick a landing, the coach gives her accurate advice. Chest up, head up. Buddy touches her in a way that reminded me too much of the possessive touch of abusive men like Larry Nassar and my own brother. <sighs> Maybe it's that casually abusive touch that shakes her ability to perform. She tries another run, but the coach tells her to stop. He can't watch it anymore. In the background, her sister Zoya seems confused. Wasn't Tatiana supposed to be on a one-way trip to power? The already nearly empty seats, empty completely. But in the background, powerful people from the government have arrived, and one of them is a pedophile named Victor Mosklov. That's the man she's married to in the present. In the flashback, he's a finance minister. His special liking to young Tatiana, the youngest as a pedophile for sure, means that she'll never want for anything again. How long is what she wants is an extension of this man. So he asked her to go on a date, and doubt in her eyes signals that saying yes will be given up as much as it brings her. Back to Tatiana in the present, and finally the picture I've got up. That's right, it ends back with Tatiana in the present. Her husband Victor speaks to his colleagues in English. That's important. Remember what I said earlier. Tatiana wants to use English with her sister as a way to speak freely in a language her captors didn't share. That power is now gone. She has nowhere to hide. Nowhere to turn, nowhere to move, no one to confide in, not even her sister. We are meant to feel how oppressive her situation has become, how it mirrors and parallels that of her sister Zoya caught in a far more explicit situation of capture and enslavement. The show is telling us that just because abuse is not crude and obvious does not mean it's not abuse. Tatiana and Zoya are in very similar situations. One of them just looks nicer on the surface. A large group of men comes down a staircase with Tatiana's husband. They're discussing schemes and the power. Ruslan, one of her husband's officers, tells Tatiana that this group of scientists will be with Victor for quite some time. They're here to study the scheme. And they're not afraid to kill as many women as it takes for them to first understand the organ and to control anyone who has it. Oh, then we go to Margo and Tunde. Oh, we cut to America and Tunde interviewing Margo. Did Tunde meet Margo sooner than this in the book? Because if I recall correctly, he met her very late in the book when their characters finally begin to converge in the same meeting place. I don't want to say too much, it's real exciting. In, in the book, 
Margot took one look at Sunday, and by then he was a very successful journalist. And she said he'd only gotten anywhere because he was hot. <laughs> the show, at least for now, has other plans for Sunday and Margot. At this point in the timeline of the show, Margot's still semi happily married and nowhere near pursuing a young man like he's a tasty piece of candy. Give him time. Give him time. Or at least six seasons in a movie. Sunday explains what will become the heart of Margot's story for this episode. At least in America, she's become the face in the voice, but not capital the voice. For the power, she opposes legislation meant to control women with EOD. What she says is merely her servant as an advocate for women's bodily autonomy. And yet, as Sunday points out, Margot's not immune whether she herself has an active skin. She's given birth, so her estrogen levels have long since been past the threshold for her to have a skin. She's never admitted to the public whether it's active. She's not alone. There are lots of invisible men, as well as intersex, non-binary, and other gender non-conforming people in the story who will not admit whether they have active skin. If Margot doesn't have an active skin, isn't she playing on both sides? Pretending that she's the show's version of cisgender, while also leaving a lot of the possibility that she might already be gender non-conforming. Because that sounds an awful lot like Ben Shapiro's definition of virtue signaling. While Tunde makes a similar challenge, he says, detractors have speculated that you're using this to build your career. Margo says, yeah, but you've been putting yourself on the line and it's come with a price, hasn't it? I shouldn't have to disclose whether I have EOD. It's in my body. And no one has the right to know Jack about it. She presumably looks over at Jack when she says, yeah, as empty as I feel Margot's Arceus become a noble weather to activate her own skin. Uh, it's a pretty good point by her. And Tunday answers her own challenge. What's his place in this by saying, I'm a Muslim. I'm a Nigerian. And I'm a man. I never really thought about how those identities intersected. I'm a gender informed my position and privilege in those other two spheres. Seeing women awaken to power and the courage to simply live their lives has awakened him to the responsibility of sharing his testimony. Tunde says, I think more men might be willing to hear that from another man. And then here comes another great speech by Margot, played by Tony Colbert. Mm -mm -mm. She says, we need men who are allies more than ever because men like Governor Danden are trying to pass legislation that would force women to register EOD as a weapon supposedly only in the name of public safety. Safety for who? I mean, male politicians don't exactly have the strongest track record when it comes to advocating for the safety of women's bodies. In fact, we still have people advocating that women shouldn't have access to safe, sterile procedures. What are we gonna do? Lock up every woman we EOD in a rubber cell? What are we gonna learn? We can't legislate women's bodies. I mean, you saw firsthand in Saudi Arabia, right? Spell is not getting on wrong, this was progress. And now she is saved by Helen's bell. That's when her assistant Helen says, hey, hey, save her for that episode where you debate Daniel Nandon on stage. I'll see that episode of the West Wing. I think this is hopefully going to give it no homage. I wish they could have done this one live. So anyway, Margot may not have even had an eye on taking a bigger political position, but then Dundee plants a seat because he asks if she's going to challenge Daniel Dandon for his Senate seat. And it's sort of like what happened in House of Cards. 
when Frank played by Hartner, wanted to get such a big public reaction to the idea of someone being elected that the nomination basically manifested itself. Hmm. So um, when we were with Margot and Helen, that interview over, Helen and Margot have a walk and talk. Helen reminds Margot, this isn't just a political idea. It isn't just a message. It isn't just virtue signaling. There are real people out there who want to hurt women, especially women who have an active scheme. Margot has chosen to become their voice, and she is choosing to speak about these issues in ways that are guaranteed to inflame abusive men and their allies. She points at Urban Docs. The show's version is someone like Alex Jones, 4chan, The Darkest Corners of Reddit. Urban Docs has 9 million subscribers, and you can now point to every single one of them at Margot. Uh, guess who's watching Urban Docs? Maddie Cleary Lopez, not Margot, but her son, Yikes. Uh, Margot's son, Jocelyn's brother, Maddie, that's the one that Jocelyn nearly blinded when she, um, oh, hey, I missed some pictures. So anyway, that's Helen, you know, um, I might do some stuff. So anyway, hold on, we'll just stay on this one. Um, so Maddie, there's not much else to say about Urban Docs unless you've never spent a moment on the internet. It's like, um, you know, it's Jones type. So the casting page on IMTV indicates the show's going to go in a different direction than the presumed middle-aged white cisgender horn dog man. Um, and what stands out is how Rob responds to his son's motivation for finding solace and comfort from the Urban Ducks message. And here's where the show once again feels a little on the nose, but it's only because that's the reality we all live in. Maddie's complaints aren't the typical complaints of real-world men. Maddie's has been reversed to reflect the emerging gender paradigm. He basically recites the most common complaints for teenage girls encountering horned up bullies at high school. Certainly what I encountered, it just would not let up. It was awful. These girls suddenly have so much power, they don't know what to do with it. Girls will be girls. It's essentially Rob's message. Uh, <laughs> and it doesn't need to be more subtle than this when it's literally what women, queer and gender, non-conforming people face every time we enter the world. We are intensely aware that other people perceive us as something other than the default for power. And we're at least vaguely aware since birth that we are at a fundamental disadvantage. The scales are violently on dust and Maddie's now experiencing what it has always been like for the women and queer people around him. He believes, as Urban Docs tells him, that the system we have is in place for a reason. It's what God is this for and it's what's going to take us into tomorrow. Uh, so what Urban Ox is saying is, you know, there's paradigms in there for a reason, but these women want to destroy it. And Maddie's beginning to believe that his sacred mission as a protector of all society will be to stop these women, including his mother and sister, from assuming ownership of a power that was never there to begin with. From Urban Ox's point of view, nature fucked up. And he's calling on all benevolent chauvinists to correct that error. Uh, so with Tatiana, um, do you remember the Tatiana, um, those Tatiana flashbacks with her younger sister? Oh, let's go back to a picture of her. Um, how about Tatiana learning that the men coming to see her disgusting husband are scientists performing experimental research on skins? So Tatiana brings her husband a drink and adopts the charm of a farm candy with a casual grasp that comes from years at play. That's why she's there, to see the graphic footage 
of a surgically removed skein. Her husband says it's disgusting. Well, most naked biological tissue is dummy. The big thing we learned is that in all three surgical removals, the women died. So keep that in mind. For some women, having the power isn't a promise that she'll keep the power. So then it goes back to Rolf. And the show often plays with a character like Jindy uploading footage and then the next character watching and reacting to that footage. In this case, we saw people in Carpathia reviewing their experimental research. Now we cut to Rob learning what they discovered. A new character named Anna Rope goes over the research with them. And what's important is that Rob is horrified. He doesn't want any part in this, but he may find himself unable to resist taking part in it. Because Anna argues that some people deserve the option to choose whether to have a skin. It's kind of like X-Men The Last Stand. Who thought we'd be referencing that movie ever again, huh? So Anna says to have this power is kind of scary. And thankfully, the research also shows that certain drugs can chemically castrate anyone of their skin. I'm not sure if the show intends this as a reversal of where skeins came from in the book. In the novel, it's explained that skeins likely came from a chemical agent placed into the global water supply as an attempt to affect something entirely unrelated. That's why there's some isolated areas of the world where skeins did not emerge at the same rate as in more densely populated cities with shared water supplies. Will they also reveal this element later on in the show, or is the show going to focus instead on a chemical agent that castrates rather than empowers? Well, we'll see. The government wants Rob's aid to manufacture a chemical agent that can be manufactured and distributed at scale. Boy, that's a fun phrase, at scale. She says it would only be used to offer each individual the choice whether to have a scale, but Rob knows better. They won't stop with giving this drug to one person by choice. Even if Anna is being sincere, someone else won't stop with giving the drug to each individual by choice. Men desperate to hold on to their power will find a way to distribute the drug through something like the water supply, thus neutering anyone with the power by virtue of them just quenching their thirst. So, oh boy. And this is the most exciting thing to talk about in the whole episode, maybe the whole show so far. Um, Anna says... The development of the organ appears to be linked to a set of nascent buds that mature into full skeins under sustained elevated estrogen levels, or in cases of transference, sustained electrical impulse. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's right, folks. Skeins and thus the power don't go only to women. This isn't a twist. Just the author Naomi Alderman Confirming the clarified world building she established in the novel upon which the show is based. Speaking to Cinema Blend, I think it was Cinema Blend, the author gushed with praise for trans actress Daniela Vega, who plays Sister Maria, as well as all else the show has helped her update in the mythology of the power. Explaining her decision to clarify that in her world, trans women are women, Naomi Alderman said. So, in the book, I'm not doing a British accent, y'all, that'd be fake. <laughs> so in the book, as readers have pointed out to me, fans have pointed out over the past two years, I have an intersex character, but I don't have any trans characters. And I started writing the book in 2011, and I just didn't think of it. And subsequently, I've had many wonderful conversations as fans of the book were just like, come on. So I'm extremely delighted 
that we have the wonderful actress Daniela Liga, who is a trans actress, who is playing a trans character, Sister Maria in the show, and we get into her story. It's not a spoiler to say that in the show, it's explicitly clear that you get the electric skein if you've got estrogen in your body. So trans women are women. Oh, I send you the quote. And so listen, also in, in Naomi's acclaimed novel, her alter ego, a male writer named Neil, comments that gender is a shell game. He continues, what is a man, whatever a woman isn't? What is a woman, whatever a man is not? Tap on it and it's hollow. Look under the shells, it's not there. So for those paying attention, it's no surprise that the show confirms skeins are not divided according to a binary concept of gender, i.e. men versus women. Skeins come from elevated and sustained estrogen, combined, of course, with a million other biological moderating variables that got nothing to do with gender. A skein does not manifest according to any concept of gender. Imagine trying to tell a person who is too serious whether they can expect to get a skein saying it's only or even mostly women who get it just betrays that you got beholden to a narrow concept of gender. A skein is a biochemical manifestation that should be seen in studies as its own thing. People who want to study how it is distributed according to gender would then need to define gender and how it has a functional use for a biochemical manifestation independent of that concept of gender. Some women are born without functioning skin, just as some women are born without functioning reproductive organs. Some men are born with more powerful skins than any woman they know. Some intersex people are born with skins. Two-spirit people get skins. Agender people get skins. You see where I'm going. It depends on a set of predictable factors that don't have anything to do with gender until a person tries to fit the science of skeins into whatever model of gender with which they identify. Those concepts of gender are just concepts, not facts. Their operational definitions, purposes, and functions make them useful, but they are also empowering in the sense, same sense as a person picking up a hammer. Sometimes a person picks up a hammer and it's so empowering that for a while, everything kind of looks like a nail. You know, Naomi also said the same thing about skeins, that when a woman first gets a skein, everything looks like a thing that needs to be shot. <laughs> well, anyway, this is why in the power, people who we typically classify as cisgender women tend to develop an active skein on their own. And that's also why skeins are usually actually spread throughout all manifestations of gender. And that's no different than any other naturally occurring biological trait doesn't care how we group some traits together versus others according to what we say fits under gender. Now, I have them said that. This show is absolutely dropping the ball on one huge opportunity to show this stuff on the screen, and his name is Ryan. Here's Johnson and Ryan. Y'all, I'm glad to see Ryan back. He's played by Nico Hiraga. I hope I said that right from Booksmart. But I'm not happy that the show appears to be ignoring that he's got a skin. Um, I apologize in advance to y'all if I'm spoiling what the show intended some weird twist, but there's no setup with this idea happening, so I'm just going to say it and move on. In the book, Ryan's got a chromosomal chromosomal disorder that contributes to him manifesting this game. He got the power. It's one reason he and Jocelyn connect so instantly and deeply. They're both, they're both weirdos in the new world, but well, in the show, 
I mean, it's still charming. I still love Ryan and the actor who plays him. But if the show castrated this guy, I'm going to cry foul. <sighs> okay, so then we're back with Robin. She, Robin's in the house, even though, well, um, yeah, isn't that funny? I got a picture of the note says. So Rob's knows something burning, but he knows in the new world that's not weed. <laughs> it's Jocelyn using her schemes. So um he interrupts uh the two in order to have a little dad-daughter chat about the schemes and the beast. Yeah, and I really like this. He isn't pushing too hard for her to talk about sex or schemes or anything, just letting her know that he's not a naive idiot who refuses to acknowledge what's happening right in front of his face, you know like his wife is doing so um his daughter doesn't want to talk to him y'all but you never know so what i learned with my own daughter probably that the kid knowing they can turn to their parent often empowers it to a degree but it's as though they already did <laughs> so um okay here we go now with robin margo rob tries to get a moment alone with margo to discuss this horrifying research into schemes and what their own government wants him to do next it turns out she already knows, and that's like a gut punch for Rob. But um, what's like a knock to his heart is when he tells her that they want him to make this drug that chemically pressed castrate people with skins. And instead of acting horrified, she sees it as just another political obstacle. Hey, buddy, calm down. Oh, my God. She believes that from her position, she can do what is needed to keep girls safe. And that means playing nice and accepting that for the sake of safety and progress, there's going to be collateral damage. This is a pretty juicy way to reinterpret Marco's arc from what we got in the book, though I will get into what I at first thought were some pretty big problems. Uh, so now we're back with Rob. And isn't this cool? Because Rob wasn't a character in the book. Not like this. Marco in the book had already divorced him, but here he's a major player. And... um. When he says bye to Margo for a moment, since his wife won't help him, he calls a friend who's also a journalist, Declan Bleeth. And Rob needs him to take this information and get it to the public. But just keep it anonymous, okay? You know, what, like urban dogs? No, no. How about some cool spot thing where it's a color and an animal? Like black jaguar or emerald eagle or some shit like that, Rob says. Oh, boy. What do you think they're going to go with? I wonder if it'll be anything like the title of the episode. So, um... Uh, we sort of stick with Rob at um, this big political party later on, and he's down and drinks like it's the end of the world. While he gets drunk, Margo and her nemesis Daniel confront each other, and um, Daniel's mad that she's finding success. The scales are balancing whether or not she has a scheme, but um, Daniel would like to bet that she does, and if she does... <laughs> He's coming for her. He'll ruin her career. And oof. so um, this party is just confusing for me, or it was. Everyone assumes Marco's got a stain. And what what does it matter whether she confirms whether she does in the show? It meant a lot in the book. But here, I was just like, what's the big deal, y'all? How about if she just lets them know hers is inactive? Why would anyone care? Well, by the end of the episode, the show gonna deliver what I found to be a stunning and fulfilling answer to these questions. Before that, though, Rob interrupts everyone by letting them know he is definitely Trump. Rather than discuss politics, he explains that the best way to get caviar is by doing things to pregnant fish that are best described as a horror movie. Then everyone gets the news at once. That document drop Rob gave to his journalist friend is now public. 
The source is labeled as the Scarlet Minnow. Hmm, Rob says, sounds kind of feminine. Uh, this guy's poker face is impenetrable. And his name sounds a lot like the title of the episode. It's likely time traveled back to the 90s. Welcome to The Rock. So anyway, Rob and Margo go home. And back at home, Rob and Margo have a fight that feels kind of on the nose again for American audiences. But is it really on the nose? Maybe it's impossible for this kind of thing not to hit so close to home. But it enters a kind of uncanny valley. On the surface, Rob's complaints reverse the gender roles. He says things like, you never listened to me. You never asked how my day was. You've been coming home for months and you just ignore me. And like every woman who ever begged to be seen by an emotionally absent person, he got a real concern motivating his outburst. He can't believe that after seeing that research and what her own government wants to do with it, Margot is in as horrified as he is. He can't believe that she doesn't see the horrifying things happening inside her own family. He can't believe that she sees Urban Docs as some anonymous threat. But it's their own son who's taken the UD word as gospel. Oh my God, that'd be like looking up argumentative penguin, one of my identical twin brothers' fake identities. <laughs> and thinking, this guy makes sense. No, a man who argues that 99 no's and one yes is not rape is a bad person. That's my brother. <laughs> so anyway, when Margot begs, Rob to come inside and act like nothing is happening. The only response he can have is to drink some more and take a midnight swim in the lake behind their house. Jocelyn and Maddie wake up and ask what's going on, but it's another moment Margo can't get grasp. Back with Tatiana. Tatiana's getting ready for the next event. She's in a gorgeous outfit. Her makeup is perfect, but she got one tiny thing she still needs help with, and it's not that tiny dog. She can't stop thinking about everything that's in the audience's mind about power. She pretends that she needs help with her bracelet so that a girl will be forced to help her put it on. If this girl has an active skin, Tatiana will use her to make her own. So Tatiana tries to get the girl to put the bracelet on her and, and the girl gets so nervous that her fingers spark and Tatiana, you know, what I mean, work with her, right? Yes, this is her chance, but you got to remember, Tatiana's not allowed to have contact with any woman who demonstrates a power. Her husband has in fact killed any girl who says a hint of it. So this girl runs away as fast as she can. And, you know, Tatiana was that close, but this girl is not dying for Tatiana. And then we get another Tatiana flashback. Um, it's Tatiana's earliest days with her husband. You know that pedophile? Uh, this is back when she was a kid. Ugh. She's already beginning to doubt whether this is worth it. But when she goes back for training to the Olympics, Coach Mitch lets her know that her gymnastics career is in fact over. It's not that she's not capable. It's that she chose to live too long under Victor Moskowitz's lingering desire. Now he got to respect this man's power. He's not going to want his wife to train she will now be nothing more than a trophy wife. And you know, how heavy is that price she pays just to taste a piece of freedom? And then we get another Tatiana flashback with Bunny. Y'all remember Bunny, who met her in an early episode with Tatiana? She came to visit Tatiana in the present, and Tatiana said, You can go ahead and GTFO. When I needed you, you gave me nothing. Now I will give you the same. So in this flashback, we see what Tatiana was referring to. Rightly or wrongly, at least we see what she experienced and why she's so mad. 
Tatiana now understands what she's accepting if she marries this Moscow guy, and she needs Bunny's help. Tatiana says he's old. What if he wants to have sex with me? And Bunny laughs on her face. She's not going to save her. Mom and Bunny worked her entire life for Tatiana to have this opportunity. You see, for Bunny, this is the chance of a lifetime. It's absurd for Tatiana to want to throw it away. Which leaves Tatiana with no choice but to accept Moscow's offer. At least it will take her away from her mother. As she leaves, however, her sister Zoya begs to come with her. Tatiana tells her instead to find her own way. Run. Run as far as you can. She actually says, I hate you. And it's not, I don't think meant to be taken as hate, hate, just as I'm trying to hurt you enough that it won't hurt when I leave. Back with Zoya in the present. Oh, this is so good. So, because now we've come full circle for Zoya, and we cut to her in the present as a captive, captive sex slave with several other girls. She is as desperate for the power as she was moments ago in that flashback. The difference is that now she knows how to get it. While their captors have killed anyone young enough to have an active skin, they neglected to take into account the deaf girl who brings them snacks. Zoya is certain that girl got it, the power, and the deaf girl's name is Marinella. She does, in fact, have it. <laughs> the man don't understand what's happening until it's too late. They let her into the room. The girls open the bags of chips, the soda, the candy, and Zoya gets Marinella's attention. Boy, it's time. So, um, oh, now we also come to a wonderful part of the episode. Uh, Margo and Jocelyn redeem the episode because Margo, Margo checks in on her daughter. And I wish Jocelyn's best friend Kat was in this episode, but in her absence, Margo asked her daughter to share one of the joints she knows Jocelyn smokes with Kat. They step outside, and here's the moment I alluded to earlier in this um on my description of the episode and what I thought was going to be a long run and complain about how they ruined Marco's art because I was ready to roll my eyes at what they've done to Marco's character but you know what I'm all in for it after this scene so despite all those fantastic moments and when Marco at this point I did feel like they had messed up her art beyond repair here's how I got cast up I just couldn't figure out why we were supposed to care whether she gets the power in the book it's because Daniel's threats are real he institutes a test to find out whether a woman has an active stain. And at that point, men are still in control. And it's dangerous for Margaret to forcibly to be tested. Yeah, except she's the only woman in the world who figures out how to beat that test. And as you can see, she's eventually going to go through it. But who knows what it's going to be like when that happens. Um, so, you know, I figured, yeah, this shit going to go in that direction. But in this scene, I finally had my own stain awakened as to how powerful Margaret's arc in the show is destined to be. Because the reason Margo had not yet gotten the power in because she's afraid of what Daniel or the rest of the world is going to do to her political career, she gets it. She hadn't gotten it yet because she still carries her internalized misogyny and ingrained belief that anything which seems to give a woman power is instead a trap asking for more pain. Margo is approximately the same age as Tony Collette, so they're about to Tom was 50 years old. She's only ever known the world where those with real power will flex their might and silence a few who dare to reach for equality. For those who have only ever known power, steps toward equality feel a lot like oppression. Margo's only known a world where no matter how strong a woman feels, a woman's always a man's always going to be stronger than a woman. No matter how safe a woman feels, she'll always need protection. 
it's this mindset that's kept Margo from asking anyone, including her own daughter, from activating her steam. It's this mindset that compels her to, on one hand, be the world's fiercest champion for women with skins. It may help to think of these people as a new gender, or even people who are off the gender spectrum, while at the same time believing she must make the world safe for those people before she could ever consider having an active skin herself. Suddenly I got it. I remembered what it was like for myself as a young trans girl in hiding. I volunteered at places like the LGBTQ Center in Las Vegas while still in the closet. I believed I had to make the world safe for gender nonconforming people before I could admit I was one. Just like Margot, I needed to open my eyes to the majesty and glory of claiming that power now. It is no cause for fear. That power, a symbol for all that is possible when we awaken to our true natures, is in fact the thing that could free us. So let's go back to Tatiana and where this picture comes from. Remember the girl who helped Tatiana with her makeup in the earlier scene? Well, her name's Solongo and she's back. Tatiana spots her hiding in a corner at the bottom of a stairwell, sparks jumping between her fingers. Perfect. So Solongo thinks she's in trouble when Tatiana catches her, but that's not what's happening. Tatiana says, give it to me. And Solongo says she never done this before and trying to kill Tatiana. Tatiana says, I don't care. And Solongo sends a shock into Tatiana's nice, nascent skin legs along her necks, and it is indeed an awakening. So um, the same thing with Zoya happening to, to Zoya, Tatiana's sister. Um, we go back to there, and Zoya's skein is now active, and she moves quickly to activate every other girl's skein. And not a moment too soon, because the men now come with guns and violence, but it's too late. <laughs> the girl sends shockwaves of liberation and deliverance to the compound. The show pulls away in a closing shot, reminiscent of the other episodes, and we see the fields. We see the girls returning to nature. We see a bountiful exchange of power and all that comes with the freedom to claim it. If the power has reached even those isolated captives, the next episode will begin to show the ramifications that will take several seasons to resolve. With any luck, those several seasons will be six seasons and a movie.